The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, this past week, I posted a couple of different uh, art links to articles on LinkedIn and on our Facebook pages uh, talking about the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, who is really going on the offensive in a number of different media appearances, talking about how the United States is replacing aid for trade. And as part of his this new push that the United States is doing is saying we are not going to be part of Africa's debt problem anymore. And it's interesting because the United States for a long time uh, was very much a part of Africa's debt problem in the 80s and 90s. And today, with the launch of the new uh, International Development Finance Corporation that came out of the BUILD Act, uh, the United States now is putting forward $60 billion to fund private investment into Africa. And in part, they're offering up an explicit criticism of the Chinese for the debt trap narrative. And they are really accusing the Chinese more so than almost any other entity of fueling the current debt crisis that is plaguing so many different African countries. Now, what's interesting is that this, 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 there's a lot of nuance to this debate. Uh, about African agency, and that is the role of Africans in the ongoing debt debate. And so much of the American narrative seems to make Africans look and sound and feel like victims. And that is that the Chinese are doing this. And once again, outsiders are taking advantage of Africans. Now, this debate is so interesting because, Kobus, you and two of your academic research colleagues in the business uh, Chris Alden, who's a professor of international relations at the London School of Economics, and also a senior research fellow in the foreign policy program at your institution, the South African Institute of International Affairs, joined you along with our old friend Ushan Wu, who's a research associate at the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University. Incidentally, full disclosure, a funder of this program, a supporter of this program. If you'd like to know all the details about that, we Welcome you to check out our page at chinaafricaproject.com slash about. So just want to put that disclosure out there. So the three of you, Kobus, put together a paper, The Flawed Debate Around Africa's China Debt and the Overlooked Agency of African Leaders. So before we get into this question about the flawed debate part, because that's what interests me the most, I'd like for you to take a quick moment to define the word agency. And I ask that because it was really only up until about two months ago, or two years ago, sorry, two years ago, that I understood what the concept of agency was. And it's a word that's largely used in the academic realm, but not in day-to-day vocabulary. So can you talk to us a little bit about what agency means in the context of geopolitics and specifically about Africans and debt and the rest of the world? Agency is a kind of a shorthand for um, for to which extent can uh, can a, an agent, a person, or in this case a government, um, to which extent can they make their own choices? To which extent do do they do they occupy a position in the world where they where they can act independently? Um, 
So, in you know, in the case of in the case of the China Africa relationship. Um, there's been a lot of a lot of talk through through the years of of you know in, in which people were asking how much agency do African countries have in relationship to in relation to China. So, in in other words, you know what what can a country like Benin or or Malawi, what can they do to to make sure that they get the right kind of deals, that the deals that they want, to which extent can they can they enforce their own laws, to which extent can they act as a as a full as a full agent with their own their own kind of decision making power in relation to a, a giant economy like China. So it's a kind of a shorthand to to talk about African independence, African decision making, and the 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 power that African governments have to pursue their own development and economic agendas. You know, it's interesting because in the United States, we never talk about agency in terms of our government and our politics. But what we the word we use is sovereignty and this idea that American sovereignty will not be impinged upon by the United Nations or the World Bank or multinational institutions or putting American soldiers under U.N. command, for example. That's an infringement of our sovereignty. What's the difference between sovereignty and agency? in your opinion. And I may be throwing you a curveball because we didn't prep this, but is, does that sound like they're linked in any way? Yeah, no, they, they definitely are linked. And the, you know, sovereignty really um, frequently comes up in China-Africa relations as well. I think sovereignty, sovereignty is a bit of a narrower term in the sense that it really relates m much more to, to governments themselves. You know, you can talk about agency in relation to people as well. You know, and I think it's, it's become a kind of a word that is used a lot in, on the left side of, of, of politics, of, of identity politics, to talk about, you know, to which extent can, you know, a, a person of color or a woman or, a, or LGBT person, to which extent do they occupy a full per, per, a position of full personhood where they can make decisions about their own life, you know, on their own terms. So so agency is useful there too. Sovereignty, I think, is a, is a somewhat, you know, is, is covers a lot of the same ground, but it particularly relates to government action. Um, and, you know, I think agency is, is a way to think about how Africa can get what it wants, you know, especially in the in, the, in a moment when Africa is increasingly not only state governments, they also they also Africa is increasingly setting a continental agenda. You know, so their agency can be can, is, is useful to talk about governments, but also about the continent as a whole. Okay, so it's good that we got these terms out of the way because it's going to shape the rest of our conversation. And we really didn't want to have this conversation without first explaining this so that a lot of folks who were like me, frankly, and didn't understand what the word agency meant would have been left out of it. So going into this article, the flawed debate around Africa's China debt and the overlooked agency of African leaders, you can find it all over the internet. It started first on courts, then it was on Southern Times, and it's it's been in a number of different places. So if you just look up Cobus uh, and that title, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, you'll find it. We had hoped that uh, Professor Alden would join us, the third author of this article. Unfortunately, he just couldn't make it today. So we're thrilled to have back on the show, Ushan, uh, again, a research associate at the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Ushan. Hi, good afternoon and good evening. <laughs> yes, good afternoon, good evening. Um, <laughs> Let's talk a little bit. To, so I'll be interviewing Kobus today. You're not going to be a co-host. You are a guest. So I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions. But of course, it's a you can talk. Uh, we can go back and forth on this. But let me first go to you, Ushan, to talk about a little bit what motivated the three of you to write this article at this moment right now. 
because so much of the debate, both in Africa and certainly in the Western media, has portrayed the, the, the Africans as being victims in some ways. And you are saying that the debate is flawed. How is the debate flawed according to the thesis that the three of you laid out? So why we decided to write this article, I mean, we know that the China-Africa Forum has been taking place every three years. And I think the same discussions come up, you know, who's leading the relationship, who's in the driver's seat of the China-Africa relationship. Um, and I think rather taking the the standpoint of is Africa in the driving seat or China in the driving seat, we wrote this piece to really, I think, unpack the nature of decision making in the relationship and specifically the African side. So we've talked a lot about, you know, the headlines of Africa's debt um, and you know, a lot of commentators will say, look, this is an example of Africa and its lack of agency or determination in its far foreign relationships. Then you'll look at headlines, for example, like, oh, well, look, the African Union or Africa is now signing up for a common free trade agreement. Look, that's an example of agency. So I think what happens is we start taking these singular examples and making them exemplify either or example. And I think what's important is to try bring this all together and, and realize that it is a lot more complex than just either or. Kobus, let me put a question to you very quickly on this same topic. And one of our favorite guests that we have on the show quite a bit is Ansetsi Ware, who is a Nairobi-based international economist. And she writes quite frequently and, and very poignantly, in my opinion, about this question of agency and how it infantilizes African governments. That is, number one, it strips them of all the responsibility. By making them the victim that somebody is doing something to them, African leaders are not held accountable for the decisions that they make. And number two, and I think this is really very, very important, is that it shifts the burden to looking at what is China doing and not what African people are looking at their own governments and their behavior. Talk to me a little bit about this question of the flawed debate that Yushan talked about and also marrying that with some of the points of view that Anzetze has talked to us in the past about. So the, this is an issue that has been, that has really lies at the, the heart of China-Africa relations. Um, because the, the sizes of the economies are so different, um, the, the, the problem always becomes um, how to talk about China and a particular African economy in the same breath when those two, those two economies are so massively differently sized. Um, so, you know, what we've, we've started to call the, the new kind of neocolonialism theme comes up a lot there. You know, so, so this, 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 this assumption, okay, so African, African economies are very small. African governments tend to frequently be quite weak. Um, and so they are simply, so there's this assumption that they're simply being taken over by China. Um, you know, China is, is the new colonist, it's moving in, it's changing everything, you know, according to its own rules. But when you look at it actually on the ground, um, and you know some of the guests that we've that we've spoken to before, like Lucy Corkin, for example, who's, who's looked a lot at, Ang at Angola, will point out that actually in a lot of cases, uh, you know, African governments are a lot more potent than they seem. 
um, and they frequently set the, the you know, they, they managed to, to sometimes set the terms of the relationship more than we would have expected if we looked, simply looked at the economic size. Um, you know, so a country like Angola or the DRC would sometimes play off China and Western, you know, Western financiers to get a better deal, or they would set terms, um, you know, for, for their own their own purposes that, that China sometimes actually concedes to. So then there was this kind of counter-narrative that came up saying, like, look, African governments are a lot more powerful than they seem, and we, you know, kind of, we, we need to not underestimate African agency. What we decided to do was to... to to say that rather than kind of betting one of these two horses, betting on one of these two horses, what we need to do, what would be more helpful, is to start unpacking what we actually mean when we talk about African agency. Um, and because it's a lot more complicated than it seems, including because, you know, just to simply assume that an African government is the only is the only player in this relationship, is the only African player in this relationship, is uh, to underestimate the complexity of Africa. Um, you know, so you have everything from opposition parties, regional economic communities, the entire continent as a whole, the African Union, all of these are players in the China-Africa relationship, and they all complicate the relationship in different ways because they all have different levels of power. Um, so we this, we said we, we made the point that that the the debate around agency is oversimplified, um, and for that reason, it's time to actually unpack what African agency means um, and and to start thinking about where you would actually locate it. Um, and that is so. So the the, the paper, you know, we, we wrote an op-ed that's based on a longer paper, which is which is, was published by SIA. It's on it's on the SIA website, um, and there we really go into different cases studies where we look at different ways that Africa, different kinds of African actors managed to, to exercise agency in relation to China um, in okay. order to unpack that concept a bit more. Yeah, but there's something that, I, that I'm missing here and I'm just not getting it. And Ushan, Kobus has mentioned about the power imbalances and the size imbalances between African states and China. Uh, and let me read a quote from from the essay. And I don't know which of the three of you wrote this, but you guys are all accountable for it. So <laughs> how is an economy the size of Benin or Togo's, for example, supposed to meaningfully engage with the Chinese behemoth? It's a bit like trying to speed up your bicycle by grabbing onto a passing jumbo jet. It can take you to the next level or it can simply rip off your arms. And I guess this is weird for me because compared to Benin and Togo, every economy is huge. And these countries have been dealing with the French, they've been dealing with the Americans, and by the way, the American economy is still bigger than the Chinese economy, and the Americans invest more in Africa than the Chinese do. So why are we having this debate now about dealing with the Chinese when African countries have been having power imbalances for centuries? What's new about this? Why are the Chinese being singled out when the Americans, the British, the Europeans, all of them, have had a similar power imbalance than what the Chinese have today? Yushan? So I think, yes, we look at the China-Africa example, but I think this debate does extend beyond, beyond this. Um, I think in the, in the longer piece, the, the paper we wrote, for example, Kubis talked about, we looked at the African Union. You, we are asking, I think, bigger questions. So we often focus on this dynamic between China and Africa. And, you know, we forget about the dynamic within the African Union itself. So the fact that more powerful states might not actually want to allow 
the African Union itself to, to overpower their decisions. So the extent that the African Union is able to create this, what we call African agency, and um, is, is a big question. And so one example we gave is the reforms that the African Union um, put out early last year, led by um, Paul Kagame. And, and one of the suggestions was that there would be a restructuring of Africa's um, external partnership summits which means that um, Africa will be represented, or which they hope, by a selected number of representatives rather than the entire continent. So you could imagine having, for example, three, four representatives meeting China for FOCAC instead of 50 plus states. So in some ways that is positive because I think it's always a struggle to, to formulate common positions. Um, there's always... You know, I think sometimes we wonder, is it bilateral relationships that come first or um, a, a common, um, I guess, African policy that people have also questioned or, or called for? Um, so I think there's that, there's that component. But at the same time, it, it is a question of to what extent could this actually take place? So I think we also have to move this discussion to the continent itself. And I think one of the things that Quobus talked about, and I think it's so important, is that you could talk about, oh, look, there's African government agency um, when it comes to signing deals at the, fork, at, the, at the FOCAC on the sidelines, then the African governments bring it back home, for example, to South Africa. And you could see, you know, some of the, some of the concerns or backlash or questions that then the South African public have towards these agreements. So I think, again, it is this question about where is the determination actually, actually African determination actually located? And if I can follow I mean, up this... on that, um, sorry to interrupt you, Eric. Um, just you know, you you ask how this is different from from, for example, the U.S. or Europe's historical relationship with Africa. Um, the the this is kind of this is the reason to do it because. You know, the, the Western relationship with Africa is, you know, lies somewhere on the range of a, a massive failure to a historical crime against humanity, right? Kind of that's that's kind of the, the, the territory occupied by the by the West China, West Africa relationship historically. Um, so, you know, that relationship is historically bad. And so and, and a lot a lot of, of, of people who look at the China Africa relationship simply predict that that, that, that China will be a repeat. Of that of that bad experience, other people to look at it and say, look, you know, kind of China itself has been has been uh, through the experience of, of of being colonized, being occupied, um, and this is a south south relationship that that possibly offers a different way forward for Africa. So, in, in if if one looks at if one looks at the relationship, then you need to to. You know, kind of the, the, the historical precedent of the West's relationship with Africa makes it important to look at the China relationship with Africa, to, to, in order to see whether it's simply repeating the pattern. But then also because the, the Chinese relationship with Africa is newer, you know, so so it, it needs it's it's big and it's new. So it needs a certain amount of of, of additional specific interest um, within the context of Africa's of Africa's kind of unhappy experience with other large economic powers. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. 
Follow the ACRP on Twitter at VitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. I'm going to push back on both of you on, on one key point about your the section you guys wrote about in terms of maximizing agency. And this goes to Ushan, what you were talking about in terms of this vision one day of having three states representing Africa to negotiate with the Chinese and get a better deal. Um, this idea of shared power is something that is not new. Uh, it's something that we as Americans are struggling with today. And I think the United States has probably gone farther with this than almost any other country in the world in terms of the, the, our form of government, the creation of the Senate, the House, and the separation of powers and how power is distributed, where the Senate tends to favor more rural areas, the House now tends to favor more urban areas, and yet we have a highly, highly polarized, divided society that is pulling itself apart. The next best experiment in this, in this kind of regionalism is the European Union, um, which, depending on who you talk to, will probably not be around in the next five to 10 years. It's one major country's defection away from falling apart. That is, if Italy decides to go, does the European Union survive? And my point here is that Pan-Africanism has been a dream for decades. And yet, uh, it has never really materialized because the same pressures that are pulling apart the United States, urban, rural, or uh, populism and nativism in Europe, uh, will affect Africa as well. And they don't have the institutions on the regional level or the continental level that exist in the United States or Europe. So is it just really the fantasy of people in think tanks and academics to talk about this? But the reality is, is that Nigeria and Benin do not have that much in common and will never really compromise to the point when they're negotiating with the Chinese over billions and billions of dollars. So first, Yushan, I'd like to get your take and then Kobus have your perspective on this. And well, I mean, I guess to an extent I, I agree, and I, I, we talk about this in, in the paper, that this this is a development since last year up till now. We, of course, cannot, even if we are think tankers or researchers, predict where this is going. Um, I think more than before, there has been this drive because we're talking about the continental free trade area, we're talking about um, other things such as, you know, um, looking into visa regulations, etc. But I think one thing that we also try to bring up in this paper, and I don't think we were able to so much in the shorter piece, is this idea that determination only exists at the government level. So if we put aside the African Union process for a moment, um, and we just look at how the African context or environment has also impacted the way that China is able to engage the continent is also something to talk about. And I think we brought up two examples in the paper, which is the peace and security environment. And I think you've interviewed um, quite a few people who've talked about um, this already. But the fact that African peace and security environment has affected how China is able to engage. It's had to increasingly become more involved. Um, and even if you look at FOCAC documents um, over time, since about 2009, 2012, up till now, peace and security is a much more larger feature than before. And this is because of the environment um, and what has happened on the continent, not necessarily because of the relationship between governments. The same with the wildlife topic, and I think we've also brought this up um, on another occasion, where in 2015, wildlife was hardly a feature in the FOCAC documents. But the more, I think, civil society, even um, Chinese academics, um, 
you know, brought this topic up. There were side events all around the FOCAC. Um, and whether you can make this correlation or not, um, by the FOCAC 2015, wildlife came up. It came up again um, in September this year in, in the last FOCAC. So I think we also have to look at, um, you know, African determination, not just at the high level where governments are determining or, or signing deals or discussing with one another, but also I think developments on the ground. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, we weren't necessarily advocating for for these AU um, these AU reforms. You know, where where the AU would essentially you know stand in for Africa and its negotiation with China for exactly the reasons that you point out. Is that you know, on on the one hand, um, strong countries within Africa or strong economies tend to be unwilling to to cede that that authority to the AU, and weak countries. Um, or small economies tend to be worried that that by ceding that authority they might be pushed out by larger com- larger countries. So so we we share your doubts on on whether whether this is the way to go. What we're more interested in is that the AU put together this idea. You know, kind of. So the AU is 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 acting. You know, in is providing leadership and is providing a kind of a thought leadership in the way that Africa could engage with large actors outside of its borders. Um, um, in the second place, the the interesting we we are at, a, at an interesting kind of historical moment where, as all of these multilateral institutions around the world seem to be falling apart, like the EU, for example, Africa is itself moving towards more cohesion. You know, so it signed a continental uh, free trade agreement last year, this year, um, and uh, you know, it's it's moving to, it's moving towards towards you know uh, making it easy, making travel easier. You know, kind of you know, it's moving towards. Re- continental integration and regional regional integration. So, you know, things move slowly and it's still early days, but it is an interesting, um, you you know, an interesting kind of counter movement to, to, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the dominant economies. Yeah, and it's worth noting that just this week, in fact, the African Development Bank announced a $2 billion uh, infrastructure development fund premised on the idea of interconnectedness, cross-border infrastructure, roads, rail, things like that, that bring countries together. So that's very encouraging to me. And so I I would like to see more personally happen at what you're talking about on the ground level, the trade, currency, tariffs, and things like that, that actually facilitate business rather than at the political level, which I think is much, much more difficult to negotiate. Of course, trade is political, so there's always a political aspect of it. But if we can start to see some of that regional integration happen just in terms of cross-border transportation and cross-border trade and currency and things like that, that would definitely help. Uh, Let's wrap up our discussion going back to the title of your essay. And and we really didn't get to it as much as I would have liked to. But this, this part about the flawed debate... And Yushan, I'd like you to leave us with some thoughts for people who are following the debate and really don't understand the concept why it's flawed. To them, the debt trap narrative makes a lot of sense, that the Chinese are engaging in predatory lending practices towards the towards African borrowers, and it's placing African states in enormous state of risk. Um, talk to us a little bit about what's flawed about that or how people should maybe think about this in a different way. So I think... I would probably leave, um, you know, the end of this discussion with how I started is that, again, if we link it back to this agency debate, um, often when we see a headline or a story such as this issue of, of debt, it's either, oh, look, Africa's losing its power, or alternatively, there's also been, I think, um, 
a few scholars or, or, or articles about how actually, guess what? It's not just China. Um, Africa also owes a whole lot of other countries, um, you know, funds. So I think what is important and I think what is interesting is one of our um, another platform that published this piece talked about how the ties between African countries and China are complex and understanding this matters. So I think we need to look at both sides because if you just ignore the one, I think we run at risk of not putting Africa first um, when, when we do analyze um, any new issue. Um, yeah, you know, I would, I would, you know, connect to that and say that well, one of the case studies that we look at is the Belt and Road Initiative, and particularly as it relates to Africa. And the Belt and Road Initiative obviously carries all of these debt issues with it. And it also carries a lot of questions. It, it becomes quite revealing in, in, in terms of what African agency means, because what we've seen in the Belt and Road Initiative is that, is that you know, the, the, the people who sign the deals are governments. But then when they, after the deal has been signed, they tend to face a lot of, of sometimes, you know, a lot of, of popular pushback to, to the extent that in some, in some countries in Southeast Asia, um, some um, Belt and Road projects actually ended up being cancelled um, or, you know, uh, you know a, a success of a, a, um, a subsequent different com uh, party government would would get themselves out of those agreements that that their that their predecessors signed. So it it shows how even in in cases like the the these high level decision making that that you would see in the Belt and Road Initiative, the the, the actors involved are not only the national governments. Um, they are opposition parties. They are local communities. They are they are African banks and and companies. And so it becomes a you, you we. We argue that it becomes really important when you talk about these issues, the issues around debt, for example. It becomes really important to talk about who the decision makers are and who the actors are, you know, because sometimes those people aren't necessarily always 100% the same. Um, and so it, it you know, um, it becomes really important when you talk about who is being victimized or not being victimized by Chinese debt to take into account the complexity of, of, the, of the actors involved including on the Chinese side. So the article is The Flawed Debate Around Africa's China Debt and the Overlooked Agency of African Leaders. I, because I'm not an academic, read the nice abbreviated version on Quartz Africa, <laughs> which there will be a link in the uh, in our show notes. And I'll also put a link in, in our show notes if you are wonky and you really want to get into the weeds on all this, you can find it at the South African Institute of International Affairs website. That's at saiia.org.za or za as you folks over there would say um so that is the longer version that's a lot more detailed uh it was written by professor chris alden who unfortunately couldn't join us today from the london school of economics yushan wu who is at the china africa china reporting project at wits university and of course Kobus, who is also at SIA as well. Uh, thank you both, Kobus. Today you are a guest, so we're not going to do our normal wrap-up. Uh, but I wanted to thank you both for uh, for taking the time to talk about the article and also to kind of shake up a little bit how we see this important issue around the debt because the narratives coming out of the West are certainly very, very strong. And I think it's so important that all of us kind of challenge what the West is saying, not simply because it's coming from the West, but just because it's just not good to get locked into any one simple understanding of a complex issue, you know, as varied as this one is. Uh, so th thank you both for joining us, Yushan. We really appreciate it. Welcome back to the program. And we, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.
Cobus, I'm not going to say thank you to you because I'll <laughs> see you next week. But uh, hey, just before we go very quickly, um, I also want at the end of every show, we're giving a little shout out to uh, to, to listeners who reach out to us. And uh, our listener of the week this week is uh, William Linder, who uh, reached out to me uh, from Senegal, where he's the head of 14 North Strategies, a strategy and risk advisory firm focusing on West Africa. He's been listening to the show for a while. And uh, so, William, thank you so much. And I just thought it'd be neat for everybody to kind of get a sense of the community that we have built up around the world of listeners who are doing amazing things related to China, to Africa, to all sorts of different things. And we're just interested in these topics and these affairs. So keep the letters and emails coming. Again, I have to profusely apologize on behalf of Cobus and myself that we are falling ever farther and farther behind in responding to the emails. And uh, people are asking us for help with dissertations. Journalists are asking us for help with story information. Uh, we want to help everybody. Uh, we're trying our very, very best. And so we will get back to you, but it may be a little bit delayed. So until next week, Cobus and I will be back again with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Studinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.